Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the content of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Week Ends, which is kind of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by my colleagues, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the great privilege this week of chatting with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, who's written a great new book called Nurture the Wow, Finding Spirituality in the Frustration, Boredom, Tears, Poop, Desperation, Wonder, and Radical Amazement of Parenting. I give you my conversation with Danya Ruttenberg. time is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, who I feel like I already know you, even though I don't. And we've just spent, in full disclosure, we've just spent five minutes or six minutes maybe talking before um, we started the interview, just so we could get acquainted. But you are coming to us live from Jerusalem. It's true. What are you doing? Before, before we uh, talk about your book, which is amazing, uh, Nurture the Wow, just give our listeners a sense for what you're doing in Jerusalem right now. <laughs> so first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be on and already in our five minutes of getting to know you, I've decided you're the most fun person on the planet. So um, I am in Jerusalem for the year because my partner is here on academic sabbatical um, and he's Israeli. And so the deal has been for a long time that we live in the States. And then when there's sabbatical year, we all come here. Um, what is his field? Is great. What, does he, what does he do academically? He's a mathematician. Um, so, you know, he's doing research and a lot of his people are here and his family is here. And it's been, it's been a great year. It's been a really, really wonderful year for all of us. Um, so, yeah, we're only here for another month, though. So we're, were, you, we're good at, were you good at math as a kid? No. Okay, Me? That's, yes. No. Okay, no. thank God. Because I've watched... Uh, it, it's so funny because this is the opposite. Usually you watch... A, a TED talk or something, and then read the book. After reading through your book, I actually went and watched your Eli talk, which, thank you, I didn't know there was like a Jewish TED talk network. Um, and I'm thinking, if this woman is good at math, I have to hate her because you're very articulate. Yeah, you're, you've, you're, you're an articulate, uh, interesting person. If you were good at math, then you would have no friends. There's no, no math, but thank you. I'll take it anyway. So you wrote a book called Nurture the Wow. Um, which is basically about spirituality and parenting and actually re-envisioning theology through the lens of being a mom. Mm -hmm. Why the book? Yeah. So several things. One, um, so when my, my oldest who is now seven um, was probably a year and a year or a year and a half, the question popped into my head wondering how many theologians throughout history have been mothers. And I knew immediately the answer was not very much, not very many. Um, in Judaism, it's, all, it's been all dudes up until the last maybe 40 years. Um, in Christianity, the mostly the women who wrote theology were monastics, and they had the room of their own and the sort of socioeconomic uh, position in which to write. And, and no dudes around. I mean, that's no just, dudes, uh, yeah. so Something about, like, an intellectual, like, it, it, would it be great if you had, like, 
monastic stuff today, but like you didn't, you, you could that just be a woman that like got to go to an intellectual retreat with other women and then you got to date and other things like that and just, but you had that sort of little cloister. People would be so productive. Well, people do that. I mean, I think they call it in writer's colonies now or, you know, meditation retreats. People try to build in that time now, but, um, but for a long time, women were the class of people who were engaged in the labor of childcare, right? The men would go off someplace else and write the books and explain to us what God is and what prayer is and what spirituality is. Um, and somewhere, somewhere else, there was uh, there were little sticky people um, who were having tantrums and someone else who was loving them and snuggling them and, and taking care of them. And when I realized how transformative the work of parenting has been in my life, how quickly I sort of exploded in terms of my growth as a human being in this room full of new experiences. Um, and I realized that, that there was this gap between uh, the spiritual practice that anchored me. I mean, I was already a rabbi when I became a mom. So, you know, I was already deep, deep, deep in Judaism, but there was this feeling of, the, of a gap and there were all of these rich, exquisite, challenging, powerful experiences. And these two things weren't really talking to each other. Um, so Nurture the Wow is really about trying to build that bridge. Now, I would guess if you weren't a 90210 fan, you know what it is, <laughs> right? That's just a generational thing. I don't want to ask a woman her age. Um, you look younger than me. I'm, I'm 41. I don't care. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're, I'm, I'm that age. Yeah. We are. We are pretty, but one of the things that's so interesting is my wife and I have married a couple of years, and she's an incredibly successful um, person in the healthcare field. And, you know, we're, we're thinking through the process of having kids. We both want to have kids. We both had sort of family stories that make us a little anxious about it. Um, I, do you think that, like, in pre-modernity, people just had kids, right? They just had them. Like, you just, that was what you did. You, but, like, now it's, it's a, parenting is a choice. And I feel like one of the gifts of your book is uh, it's almost like a uh, de-anxiety kind of treatment. I mean, it, it actually made me less anxious about the prospect of being a parent. Now, is that, were you anxious before you had kids about being a parent? I mean, so my mom died when I was in college. And so when so my sorry. partner and I were starting to, yeah, it sucks. Um, when my partner and I were thinking about um, kids and it started to be like, okay, this is the time we said we were going to start uh, trying. I had about a month of having a meltdown around sort of dead mom and not having a roadmap um, in the way that a lot of people do. Um, and yeah, and then it was just time. So I didn't have, I don't think I had anxiety of the intellectual sort. I think there was this deep, deep emotional stuff I needed to work through. But, um, you know, I, I believe that if you've let yourself feel your feelings and actually experience them fully, then eventually they get bored and go someplace else. So T.S. Eliot, uh, says that it's the poet's job, um, to turn, uh, ink into blood. Uh, mm. What's the blood intake? Rather, blood intake. Blood intake. Sorry, my I had the right, 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 it's blood intake. And then Will Willimon said it's the preacher's job, which is a rabbi. You can probably get this to uh, turn the ink back into blood. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. How long is for when you write a book like this? 
how long does the experience take to set in before you can turn the blood into ink? Because you do it with, you do it really capably. Thank you. Um, I mean, this book was interesting. My last book before this was called surprised by God. And it's a memoir of going from a, being a, a grumpy little punk rock atheist in high school um, to this long, very convoluted uh, war- winding road that eventually led to a rabbinical school. Um, and then it was writing about things that had happened five years earlier, 10 years earlier. And so the, you know, there had already been the, all, all this emotional processing that had happened by the time I got to the page. Um, this time around, literally... Uh, I was writing down things that had happened the day before that day. Um, and so it was a very different experience. I mean, a lot of the philosophical stuff obviously was, was simmering for a while. Um, but <laughs> I remember, you know, with the hard feelings chapter, there's this, this chapter in the book that's all about all the, the dark, ugly feelings that come up while we're in the middle of caring for these uh, sort of crazy, needy, um, wonderful vulnerable little creatures um, with whom we are charged. And I was like, I need an opening story before I launch into all of the philosophical stuff. I can't think of, I mean, there happens every day that I, I feel, you know, grumpy and irritable and everything. Cause I'm a, you know, limited human being like you're the rest per- of us. You're a person. I'm a person and raising kids is hard. Um, and I said, I didn't have a story. And so I was like, okay, well I'll just wait. And within a week, I had a really good story because, mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> you know, the, this, this particular meltdown is happening, you know, on both sides. I'm a little melting down. They're a little melting down. This is a great story. I'm going to take this pain and turn it into something useful and usable. And so that's, uh, I mean, it's powerful when it happens. Um, and it is, it, it was a very different experience writing this book where a lot of the stories were so fresh. Um, I didn't have, you know, the benefit of 10 years of hindsight and wisdom about what was really going on. Yeah. Um, And you talk about like how basically, you know, GK Chesterton says that, that wonder is so key to being a healthy human being. And, and, you know, like he said, you you want to see the difference. You want to know it. Like he says, we're as young as our dreams and as old as our cynicism. And Mm -hmm. since there's a huge difference between taking a four-year-old to the zoo and a 14-year-old, right? Because a (laughs) four-year-old thinks elephants... They might as well be like a talking rabbit, like an Alice in Wonderland. Everything is amazing. And you kind of think, like, you sort of argue that, hey, children have the sense of wonder that as a parent, you get to be exposed to all the time, which I think people take for granted. Totally take for granted. Um, beginner's mind, that's the sort of Zen, zen slang for the seeing the word, seeing the world uh, fresh and new, uh, is really the coolest thing in the entire world, I think. Um, and yeah, we get, we get so used to, uh, you know, our, our stupid habituated ways of, of seeing the world. And then suddenly it's like, you're trying to walk down the street and the kid's like, oh, I found a stick. Oh my gosh, it's a stick. It's a magical stick. Um, I think, you know, for me and for a lot of parents, the first impulse is often like, that's lovely. It's dirty. That's lovely. Put it down. We need to go. Um, and I think a lot of the power uh, of trying to engage with the concept of what Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great 20th century rabbi, calls uh, radical amazement, is, is that they can kick us back into the wonder place where we can go, oh my God, that's a stick. 
what else could it be? And to, to really uh, remember that the world is a place that's sort of suffused with magic. Um, we just forgot. Yeah, it's, it's so funny you say that. Like, I have a friend, and she's actually been a guest on the podcast, but she's also a friend. Um, her name's Mandy Smith, and she wrote a book called The Vulnerable Pastor. And she went on sabbatical, mm-hmm. and she said part of, she was just trying to find her inner child a little bit on sabbatical. And she was like, I'd walk by, and I saw this fence. And I thought, that fence needs a stick. She's Australian, has a very cool accent. That stick needs a, you know, a, 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 or that fence needs a stick rub, rubbed against it. But she's like, the inner dialogue that she had, which kids, it's not that kids don't ask critical questions. They don't like edit themselves censoriously. Like, oh, what if someone sees me? What, what if the, so there's something about like, is that the, the key, like being able to take ourselves not less seriously, but take the right parts of us more seriously? I mean, kids are, unless we break them really early, which I hope nobody does, but it happens. Um, kids are, are like integrated human beings, right? This sense, it takes a while and it's, you know, fascinating and a little heartbreaking to watch as my, my oldest child is sort of now getting a little bit more self-conscious uh, socially. Um, he's still got it somewhat though. You know, the sense of like, they're just fully themselves wherever they are. They're going to sing a song and they don't care if, you know, somebody's looking and saying, Oh, it's, it's dumb. That's dorky. Like they're just, they want, they feel like singing a song. They're going to sing a song. And at a certain point, our culture kicks that out of us and trains us to be more self-conscious and to project one version of ourselves in the world. And, you know, to keep the, the, true self a little bit more protected and private and in a pocket that we don't necessarily take out and show everyone all the time. Um, and, you know, I think that's the beginning of, of so much pain and so much loss for so many of us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, our kids can teach us a lot, but maybe how to be whole and integrated and to just be who we need to be today. Um, I mean, that's a pretty good thing to learn. Do, do you think your first book prepped you for the second one in the sense of, like you're in a, you're in a, you're a person that found faith, uh, as an adult. I mean, I mean, you, you, you came to a tradition, uh, and, and is there something like when, when somebody has a conversion like that, that reawakens the imagination is, is, is some, is some part of your own spiritual story, what gives you the lenses to be able to see parenthood the way you do? I, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, I was not somebody, you know, my family were, we were, kind of American suburban observant, you know, we would go to synagogue a couple times a year. Uh, we do pay Passover Seder, but uh, I didn't really have a deep connection to Judaism as a religion. Nobody certainly told me that it was very interesting. And so I had to go find that on my own. And so my relationship to Judaism as a spiritual practice, as a spiritual discipline, um, you know, as transformative personally, that's, that's deep in my DNA. And so when uh, my life got put into a blender after having kids, I went looking for this thing and I found that, you know, it was not in the same part of the room that it had been when I put it down. Um, Hmm. so yeah, I mean, I think, I think in that sense, um, it did. Um, the other thing is, you know, (laughs) Somebody once said, yeah, I, I get, ca- get tattoos in order to, to sort of mark where I am at certain points in my life. And I don't get tattoos, but I think I write books. You know, I, I imagine in 10 years I'll be in a different place religiously, spiritually. Uh, I'll be asking different questions. And this will always be 
the book that is about my kids' young years. Um, and I'm good with that, you know. Yeah. Do you think that also, like, how do you, as, a, as somebody that's kind of a conscious participant in a tradition, I mean, all traditions choose us, right, on some right. level. That's why, you know, we don't choose them, they choose us. But you had a choosing that came about really conscientiously. Uh, do you, how does that, do you think, like, I think most religious people in a pluralist society, like, they like the tradition, but in an increasingly secular age, people are just shy about sharing it, unless you're, like, a Southern Baptist or something, it's just in your DNA to share it. Like, how do you, like, how do you, does, how do you negotiate, like, the boundaries between uh, really respecting people of all faiths, and including people that are in the nuns from which you came, like mm -hmm. on some way, on some level you were, and, and yet also you seem like a passionate person, like who probably wants to share the tradition that's that's brought new life to you. I mean, this is where uh, I mean, <laughs> people often say, "What kind of rabbi are you?" And besides, well, you know, first, and they mean what denomination, and I can say I was ordained through the conservative movement, fine, but. Uh, you know, what kind of rabbi I am is, is pluralistic. Um, I see all of the gorgeousness in the tradition, and I don't presume that what my head and heart and soul need are exactly the same as what somebody else's head and heart and soul need. Um, you know, I, on campus, I, I've worked as a rabbi on campus, and, you know, I feel really, and maybe even in a broader way, I feel like my mission is to bring people around this room full of gorgeous treasures and to help people understand what all of these things are and to say, you can have as much of this as you want. And different people are going to figure out what in that room of treasures makes sense to them or what doesn't or whatever. Um, but it's not my job to tell other people what they should want or believe, but I'm, I'm happy to help people um, feel empowered and to know that they they own all the stuff in that room and it's just, it's there for them if, if, if they choose it and if they don't, then, they, then that's okay too. Yeah. And you also do a really good job. Like in the book, you talk about how Judaism on one level, right? Uh, it's not about saying the right words. There's an attentiveness oh. to it's, it. It's the, it's the fresh newness, the Zen kind of thing. Right. And another level you say, sometimes the words help. So like you, the liturgical stuff, like keep it on hand. I mean, it, don't let it become sort of, uh, moribund and stale, but uh, keep it around because sometimes it will actually give birth to an experience or actually let you, mm -hmm. let you name the experience. Yeah. That's uh that's beautiful language. Um, I, I mean, you know, the, the, the me who wrote surprised by God would say, this is the source code. We know that if you put in these words in this order, it does the thing. Right. If you every time you hit refresh, you're going to get your your web page is going to load correctly and everything's going to be right there. Um, and you need to be careful tinkering with the source code because you want to not not break the thing accidentally along the way. Um, when you do the following three things, you know, X and Y and Z, what happens is that someone who wasn't Jewish before becomes Jewish, right? It's conversion has happened, right? When you light the candles at this time, you bring in Shabbat. Shabbat, well, it wasn't Shabbat, and now it is Shabbat, um, the Sabbath. You know, I really believe in, in ritual alchemy. So there's, on the one hand, the sense of 
real respect for all of the unbelievable filtering that's happened over the years to give us a sense of liturgy that when you do the thing, it does the thing. Um, and on the other hand, I mean, you know, really what happened with Nurture the Wow is that um, I, I discovered that I needed uh, to find a different way to engage, that, that I, needed, I needed to, to have a little more fluidity and a little more flow um, in my spiritual practice. And so, yeah, I think the liturgy still works. Um, but what's different is that now I'm more comfortable saying, and that's not the only thing that works. Um, and there are all these other great things over here, too, that can, that can do the thing as well. Yeah, I feel like you, you, what you do nice, I think there's a group of people in our culture that are the spiritual, not religious crowd. Right, that hey, you know, that spirituality is where you mm-hmm. find it. And then there are a group of traditionalists who are like, oh, spirituality without you know, without religion, that's like trying to be an athlete without a team, and they kind of and there and there's kind of acrimonious thing. But I think you kind of it seems like you give voice to both impulses. Like, hey, I realize there are gonna be times when the tradition like you gotta actually look outside the 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 you know, normal ebb and flow of the liturgy, but it'll bring you back to it anyway. I mean that there's a give and take between uh, a kind of organic spirituality and the living tradition um, that's sort of the democracy for the dead. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I am saying two different things to two different audiences. Um, for people who are not traditionally religious and for whom that's never going to be the right thing, uh, I want to say there's this world of possibility and there are all these ways to plug in that are going to nourish you as you need right now in your exhausting work is that a little more self during the the beautiful parts um, and actually be able to experience them while they're happening. Um, And here's some, some nourishment uh, along the way, right? I mean, you know, that's that's for people, for whom that's for everybody. That's really what I'm saying. And for people who are traditionally religious, I also want to say, um, and there are a lot of different ways to plug in. And so, if you want to plug in in this other way, that's that's also on the menu. Um, because the guys writing the books weren't doing the work of childcare, and so we constructed a religion that did not include the, the, both the insights and the wisdom of people raising children and also the needs of people raising children. Um, so, you know, sometimes like Martin Buber, the great 20th century philosopher did not talk about raising kids when he created this unbelievable philosophy. Um, his masterwork is called I vow. Um, and so we can build a bridge from that to the lived experience of raising kids. Um, and find ways to, to use what he's got while you're making snacks, while you're in the bath, while you're, you know, navigating tantrums, all of that. Um, and at the same time, parents have a lot to teach our religion about what is and what can be. It's, I love um, that you reference Boober so. because I think, you know, Boober's I thou that like, but, you know, for people that don't know Boober, I mean, it's it's, you know, the hardest to learn is the least complicated, right? I mean, there's the sense in which <laughs> it's the way God addresses us is as a subject, not an object, and I, thou. And, like, humanity at its worst is I, it, right? Like, mm-hmm. but sometimes you just are I, it with the person at Target or maybe even with your own kids, and you give voice to, maybe Boober would have written it this way if he was doing childcare. You actually give voice not to the ideals <laughs> alone, 
but to the reality where, you know, sometimes you are an I it, uh, you know, like sometimes, or sometimes you're the it, or you make, God forbid, you make your child the it, and you actually give people permission to like find the I thou in the I it experiences, which I found, which I thought was a real gift of the book. No, thank you. I mean, you know, so yeah, I it. If if you haven't read Boober, is is when the other person's the object, right? The the waitress is the object bringing you your food. You don't care about her hopes and dreams and fears. You just want your dinner to be hot, right? Um, it happens. It is. It's a transactional relationship. It's not ideal, but it's it's part of the world. And I vow is when you're actually able to connect with the other person as a whole, complicated, messy, vulnerable, yearning person. Um, and I, I think we all, all of us who are parents struggle, um, with seeing our kids as thou sometimes, you know, sometimes your kid is the object that refuses to put on its socks and (laughs) get you out the door to work on time. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And there's this, you know, it's like this kid is the obstacle to this thing, to this goal you're trying to achieve. And there's this, this thing in the way called your kid. And I think probably the biggest, biggest, biggest amount of the work for us as parents is again and again and again, stopping and remembering that this is a person. And this is a person who is having an experience that is not your experience and some needs that might not be your needs. And, you know, every single time I remember that my kid uh, is thou it opens up and transforms the experience of, of, of whatever the dynamic is, whatever I'm trying to, you know, get your socks on already. We're running late. Right. Um, and I think this is probably a lot of our work down here on this planet is just remembering to see the other as thou as created in the divine image and to relate to them as such. You are a balanced person. Which is intriguing because I think that that eludes uh, most people. Uh, <laughs> At least in some ways. Danya, thank you so much for talking with me. And I just want to remind all our listeners to nurture the wow. And I think this is a book that, like, I think uh, people, if you're not a parent, even if you never think you're going to become a parent, pick up the book, uh, Nurture the Wow Finding Spirituality in the Frustration, Boredom, Tears, Poop. Desperation, wonder, and radical amazement of parenting. Woo woo. Diane, thanks. I hope we can do this again sometime because you're a delightful conversationalist. This is really fun. Yeah, have me back. This is so much fun. I definitely will. Uh, You're really awesome. And blessings to you uh, in Israel. Um, And thank you for letting me come play. Thank you. And blessings to you. Ditto. Right. All right, back yet again on the Mockingcast. I have Sarah Condon from Houston, Texas. What, what? Of critical acclaim for, for one of the only people that questioned America's <laughs> bowing down before the Chewbacca mask, which maybe we'll get into, maybe we won't, because this is a spontaneous program, folks. It seems scripted, and there is a rundown, but it's... There's a level of spontaneity, and Sarah might go rogue, as she did last week. Mm-hmm. And we've got David mm-hmm. Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist, and the titular head 
but also the CEO and practical on the ground guy running everything. If it's got Embert in it, it's got David Saul's animating force. Scott, 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 Scott. We're we're trying to get away from any any shred of a cult of personality here. So uh, it, it's it's a large <laughs> it's a large team full of incredible individuals who form a beautiful and uh, indistinct whole. By the way, that was a great song, <laughs> Cult of Personality. What was the band that did that? What? What? Wait, what? Which? Cult of Personality. This, the song, Cult of Personality. That was a great video, too. <clears throat> That's Living Color. And Living Color. That was a great video. They were not one-hit wonder, right? They did some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. They got a, some great songs. Uh, but th- that, that was by far their biggest <laughs> hit. So I guess in, it depends on how you define one-hit wonder. But they have a couple of records that are actually fantastic. So I want to just say, before we get into the meat of the preview of Another Weekend's, that I found something out this weekend. Hat Tip Unorthodox Podcast, which is, you know, I live and die uh, by that podcast. Well, that's a slight overstatement. But uh, BuzzFeed, their they're, uh, Jewish guest of the week, they have a Jewish and Gentile guest of the week. Now, I, I'm blanking her name, which is terrible, but is BuzzFeed's pot correspondent. So basically, I thought they said pop correspondent. I thought, well, that's not that. No, pot. It's that pot is such a developing industry. She just writes stories about weed. And like, for instance, one of the things is like African Americans are shut out, basically. A lot of them who have minor drug convictions. And these are the people that helped us get to the place, like Colorado, right or wrong, whether you agree or disagree, the irony that the people that actually helped seed this movement are now boxed out of it. The pot. So. I think like wherever you are in this, and I'm not condoning legalization of drugs. I'm not condemning it. I'm just saying, I'm just saying we could use a pot poster. Like if you're somebody out there in the Mockingbird audience and you have a knowledge of this culture, you see the law gospel lens on it. You, you see, I mean, it's a, it's just, we are trying to make the Christian faith, you know, relevant, you know, relevant to everyday life. This is everyday life in America now. So if we have a pot correspondent out there, let us know. I literally well, just spit water on my keyboard. Like as like there were so many moments. I was like, "Don't spit the water on your keyboard. Don't spit the water on your keyboard." Yeah, maybe but Scott. More, Scott did more, Scott just go rogue, Sarah? Am I? I did. I did. <laughs> and I'm gonna go. I, I'm gonna go rogue on a more serious night. No, that was kind of a, that okay. was a slight joke. Although we would not turn down necessarily an article about the culture, the culture and the scene. But also, like so many of the pieces you read are by people that don't get paid. They're volunteers. Uh, They're part of a commitment to trying to echo God's grace wherever we see it. Uh, So, so, like, and there are people that do get paid, and there are things that cost money. um, And this is not like a sort of um, NPR, uh, hey, we're going to have a terrible, 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 terrible couple shows to get away. But if you want to support us, if you love what we do, uh, and you've got a couple bucks, and you're looking, and you think that, hey, this is a good thing. Um, go to Dave, where can we go? Embird.com slash support. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because we're expanding. We're actually doing like this podcast is something that's now like we've doubled our listenership in just a few months. Um, our readership is constantly growing. We've got other projects kind of uh, in the in the I was going to say in the camp. That sounds like in the cooker. And we have it, you know, we have things we're working on. And uh, yeah, it, it's not like we're uh, trying to build an empire or something. We're trying to put out good content and connect people that have a passion for God's grace and love the world. And, and so, yeah, please uh, support us. And 
you can note that you don't want your donation to go to pot correspondence <laughs> or coverage, and we will honor that. This has been one of the more compelling uh, uh, solicitations from Mockingbird Ministries. Yeah, exactly. You're very it's a, welcome. It's a, it's a solid, it's a solid solicitation. Um, this is better than any solicitation you've ever heard on NPR. May, so the, heard may the force be with you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a K car, a nice, reliant automobile. And if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you. David, tell us about, like, it, there's so much bleak news out there. We're mm-hmm. just going to, our opening segment, it's just going to be full of satire news. Good. So, The Onion. Let's, let's lead, hat tip to The Onion. Here we go. We got, we've, we've got uh, some bottom loser entertaining offers. Yeah, read me the uh, headline there, Scott. It's extreme. Okay, it's, uh, I can, I, can, I got it in front of me. Rock bottom loser entertaining offers from several religions. Uh, this was sent to us by from uh, a friend of ours named Brian Pearson, and uh, yeah, I think we monitor the Onion no matter what. But pretty funny that uh, it, it's about sort of this complete loser who's really reached a whole new depth of depravity and is entertaining. I mean, it's kind of like a you know like a draft uh, satire that he's entertaining, kind of. The, the the Buddhists are bringing him cookies, and the the Presbyterians come out of nowhere at the end to uh, uh, offer him, I think, a private jet to uh, you know to go go their their uh, route. It's it's funny, you know. It's it's kind of it's it's really based on the idea that people only convert because of what they're gonna quote get, um, you know that the, what what's the best offer they can find. Rather, uh, but it also, you know, that people seem to have conversions when they're really down and out, that they look to religion when they have nothing else left, which, you know, um, it makes for a pretty funny article. Makes for and like funny Mr. Article. Pritchard, our hypothetical loser, says, the Catholic Church has been whining and dining me, said Pritchard, who was personally invited to attend a spaghetti supper at a local rectory last Tuesday. If I'm getting free Italian dinners today... Just think what they'll give me when I tell them that Islam is promising me lofty mansions, lush gardens, and 4,000 virgin companions in the afterlife. I'll be eating like a king. (laughs) Yeah, That's awesome. My favorite line was, obviously, he says, obviously, I bring a lot to the table. I'm a broken shell of a man with nowhere to turn. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I'll tell you the proselytizers I respect most are the Jehovah's Witnesses because it's a, it's, it's, a fairly austere faith. I mean, you don't get birthdays. You, they did get prints, but I mean, but other than that, I mean, you can't stand. You're alien. You're shamed at at baseball games because you can't stand for the pledge of allegiance. And you and there's only 144,000 that are really going to make it. So most people aren't that self righteous. Think that. So you know, you're never going to get the VIP box. And yet they're all over the place. It's a tough, even at least the Mormons, you're giving up booze and caffeine, but you have a musical. I mean, you've got a really entertaining <laughs> sacred text that's interesting and engaging. You've got those calendars of the missionaries. I mean, hats off, although I'm, again, this is not my faith and I don't think it's, you know, there's, I think there's some major theological problems. I don't think it's a true expression of the best of a religious truth. 
But hat tip to them for actually getting out there and pounding the pavement when they know they could never be the, the star. Mm. Yeah, they used to always come to the rectory when we lived in New York, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, it, it was like they came every single time that our child was napping and I was trying to study. And at some point, I just like invited them in and explained that like, while their religion sounds lovely, if I were to convert, because my husband's a priest and we live in the rectory, we would lose everything. So I was like, it's just not going to happen, guys. It's just not going to happen. And you keep waking my kid up, so don't come back. And they never came back. I surrender some. I surrender some. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Related to this, and the second satire is likened onto it, we've got something about mainline Protestantism. This actually is not like it is. Not, no, I'm not, I, there are a lot of great mainline Protestant churches. I think what happens when people get to denominational gatherings, um, like you got like, what is it? Jesus in the parallel towns is it one, three, and five talents, or mm-hmm. is it one, five, and ten talents? Oh gosh, we're Episcopalians. The yeah, exactly. One? I, I mean, don't know. <laughs> I, I thought, well, let's just let's uh, let's say look it's it one, up three, for five. you. This is uh, listeners help us out. Yeah, exactly. So. Basically, I know a guy that said, you know, the Presbyterian, you could insert Episcopal Methodist. The people that rise, the one-talent people rise to the top and then bury their talent. And so I think that oftentimes <laughs> that, that every church is broken, but I think that denominational gatherings, somehow it's like everybody takes crazy pills. So this is kind of actually something that I think is not beyond the pale. David, tell us. About... Um... Well, so do we, did we even uh, – we didn't really read the headline yet, have we? The, um, no. No. Mainline Protestantism declared a safe space for those offended by the gospel. Um, the, the joke here is, uh, you know, as, as we've sort of pointed out, but safe spaces are what are cropping up all over the American sort of academy and all these university campuses where people you can kind of go and, and, and not be um, – made to feel uncomfortable in any way or it, what started out as a, as a laudatory idea of a place where someone can go if they don't feel safe has become more of like a catch all for uh, any kind of unpleasantness or uncomfortable uh you know feeling so therefore mainline protestantism you know with, it, with its lukewarm gatherings they say what does it say that uh, you can avoid any kind of these are the the statement listed elements that safe space churches should remove from their premises, including crosses, Bibles, pulpits, organs, hymnals, systematic theologies, and sermons exhibiting any form of triggering microaggression. Be considerate. Words like sin, hell, death, wrath, propitiation, and substitutionary atonement are also on the ban list. Can but I just say something? It's got for, an edge. It's got a real edge here. I, I don't want to get in too much hot water. For the listeners here, this is kind of like inside the podcaster studio. Like we record this on Skype so that we can see each other's faces. So it's more like a human conversation. I just want to tell you, like watching Sarah, like put her hand over her mouth. Sarah, go. (laughs) I just like, I know this is painful for some people to read. I get it. But like when I started seminary, it was 2009 and everyone was like, have you heard about microaggressions? Please don't trigger me. I need a safe space. And then. I was dumb enough to have a baby in seminary, and I was like, is it possible for me to, like, borrow your safe space so that I could pump my boobs with the breast pump? And it was so hard to find a place at the seminary for me to use my breast pump, but, like, everyone's office was a safe space. Like, it was just... 
you know, I have my issues with this. And and it's you're right. I mean, it's it's a it's a valuable thing in some ways, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation, but I am also glad that people are pointing out like that it can become ludicrous. So Especially the people that are seem to be the most excited about their denomination is within mainline Protestantism. They tend, to, you know, the people that are going to the big conferences. It's 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 not that everyone in mainline Protestant denominations, speaking as someone who's very much a part of one, is like is offended by these terms or isn't going to church because they want some comfort in the face of sin and death and suffering and some sense of forgiveness it's that the people who are most excited who get who have the most energy to invest in what some might consider to be a slightly lame institution would be the ones who are most uh averse to uh there being anything that might ruffle any feathers which of course you take out all you have left is sort of the shell of uh, theology and all these everything that this is lampooning is uh you don't have to travel very far to see however um we also, you know, people that are, at least Sarah and I, are pretty ensconced in mainline Protestant tradition. Because there's a lot of, uh, you know, you're also, it's, a, it's, it's also a safe space from the enormous uh, psychosexual baggage that you, uh, um, in you, uh, you just imbibe through your involvement in most evangelical churches. So there there's the pluses and minuses i guess one uh one uh one of these casts closer to the mental health issue we have to do do one of those things where they profile all those uh the personality types that are attracted to each separate um oh yeah you know each separate denomination because they're that's those studies are out there and it's very very interesting and you know you find uh what what comes first, the personality or the theology? It's a good question. And Frank Lake has a lot to say about this, which I'm actually going to write a piece about um, for the mental health issue, about Frank Lake and PTSD and the history of heresy. Mm. Uh, and on, talking about uh, faith and theology and heresies, we also have something interesting in Christianity today, which has a kind of... Uh, it, it feels like a sort of uh, satirical title, but it's not. It's how God messed up my happy atheist life. <laughs> um, should, should I take this one, guys? I'll, uh, I'll jump on it again. Uh, this is a it's it's a um, testimonial written by Nicole Cliff, who is the co-founder of the Toast, which is this extremely funny. She describes it as a feminist website. Um, and there, those that's, that's certainly a big part of it, but it, it kind of has become just a, one of the best humor sites, period. And I know tons of, uh, you know, people that, that are just interested in the humor aspect. Uh, however, she, uh, they, they do a lot of stuff about religion. They have a thing called the Convert Series. And I think um, the other co-founder is Mallory Ortberg, who's just, Someone said she described her as the person that just wins the internet because she's just so funny. We talked about her before, but she's the daughter of uh, John Ortberg, who's a big, I think, kind of like a pastor of an enormous church somewhere. Anyway, uh, he's huge. <laughs> Nicole uh, Cliff, who you know was very in, kind of like placed in the heart of what you might consider to be the secular uh, snarky um, blogosphere. Uh, Details a conversion, and it's a conversion that has to do with her, kind of her relationship with the Ortbergs, but also reading Dallas Willard, um, and um, 
He talks about it not actually it not being an apologetic a conversion as a result of apologetic argument, but more like God just tapping on the shoulder. She just started crying uh, all the time, and she she says she didn't feel some huge unfulfilled yearning that she was looking for some hole in her soul. Though of course uh, she's also trying to dance around certain cliches about conversion stories because she does say she was having a hard time and she almost has to apologize for that, but. Um, then she just starts crying and crying, and she can't stop reading books about Jesus. Right? It's a, it's it's about as charming a conversion story as you could find, uh, and I love it. It made my week. Sarah, your your story has and some echoes, echoes and parallels of a of a kind of story right, like this, right? right? In, In the, the sense, sense of you've had a kind of adult, adult coming yeah. to faith in a new way. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I kept thinking of that. I think I've talked about that with you before on here, but. Just, it um, was before you were the host. It was before you joined the staff oh. of the cast. <laughs> when you were just my favorite guest. When you were just my favorite guest. And oh, still, so sweet. and still, and still. Still your favorite guest. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I, it did remind me of in college, I was, um, I had left the church. I was uh, very seriously dating um, a young man who was Jewish. And so I was sort of thinking about conversion to Judaism. And, but I hadn't been to church in a long time. And I went home to visit my parents and who were never pushy about church, but it's just like a thing they do every Sunday. And so my mom got up and she said, you know, if you want to come, you can. And I did. And I was sitting on the pew with her and it was time for communion. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And I, it was literally like, there's this nudge, this push that was like, it's just one foot in front of the other, Sarah. And that was coming back to church for me. Um, Yeah. And I so related to the stuff she said about, um, that she's more undone than she used to be. Like, I just think that is such an accurate description of coming to know Christianity in a deeper way is that you, I think you do cry more. I mean, at least I've definitely experienced that and, um, you feel more and yeah, I, I loved her narrative too, because I think it speaks against this thing we get in Christianity, um, about doing more like, well, we're Christians. So that means we do more, you know, we have to take on more. And she really writes beautifully and in a compelling way about how, when we become Christian, like it is in being cracked open that, that fruit comes out. Right. I mean, on some way, in some levels. So, anyway, I loved it. She says, uh, it went- I never possessed much chill, to be honest. Now I have none whatsoever. My Christian conversion has converted me no simplicity. It has complicated all of my mm. relationships, changed how I feel about money. Isn't that interesting? Uh, messed up my public persona and made me wonder if I should be on Twitter at all. Obviously, it's been very beautiful. And that's the ending of it. It's such a, <laughs> it's such a perfect ending. It's so good. A- amen. Yeah. And Sarah, was that... Was that uh... An Episcopal church, right? That uh, you yeah. went to? Yeah. That's very yeah. interesting, right? Like, because we have this satire about like mainline Protestantism and mainline Protestantism, uh, but even jail, every, uh, the church everywhere is in a hard time because it's full of sinful people and sinners. But it's interesting. You think of in the Old Testament when Israel is divided, right? And so you get the Northern Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom. God's always sort of throwing prophets from the South up to the North and from the North down to the South. And they're separated brethren, but they're separated brethren. <laughs> And so, I mean, it's uh, the truth is where you find it, and Christ plays in a thousand places. Mm-hmm. And 
let's talk about gender. Because last week, I think our, our best moment was, uh, was all about gender and coffee. So this week, David, you wrote a piece about masculinity. I, in honor of it, I'm wearing a tank top, which I wore at the Episco. <laughs> I wish you guys could see this. It's amazing. It, it is amazing. I'm, I'm fit. I'm fit. Uh, and so let's talk a little about, we've got a piece about uh, Lena Dunham, and we've got something about Vigo Mortensen. So we've got Girls and Return to the King. Yeah. Go. So... Yeah, so Lena Dunham, um, everyone posted this in my news feed. Uh, Lena Dunham wants uh, to quit her addiction and is, is asking other women to, um, to quit their own addictions to apologizing. It also says she credits Beyonce for the decision, which is how I justify everything in my life. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't like this at all, to be honest with you. Um, I, I didn't like this because I think we keep getting it wrong. I think we keep seeing these studies. We keep, you know, hearing these sort of hear these social norms, and it's like uh, it's like you know, women aren't working hard enough. Men are working so hard; they're working all the time. Like if women could just be more like men, then everything would be better. And it's like women apologize all the time. If they could just be more like men and never apologize, then everything would be better. Well, how if women about women could be more sexually aggressive and, and, right, and, uh, and right. promiscuous? They'd be healthier. then everything would be better. Yeah. How about men should be more like women? How about that? Like, I'm rooting mm-hmm. for Lena Dunham to, like, up her feminism game here. Like, how about everyone should be apologizing more? Like, I hate when people say, imagine what the world would be like. But seriously, imagine what the world would be like if everyone decided they were going to apologize more. Like, and the fact that her father, and I get it, like, you know, calm down feminism. I understand that her father is the one that suggested that she take a week off from apologizing just made me think, he must be terrible to be married to. Like everyone should be apologizing more. So anyway, that's my- imagine. Imagine if guys just the impact on both genders. If guys just sat to pee more. I mean, because how many people oh of both God. genders in the middle of the night that sat down wouldn't have an unpleasant surprise? I mean, we could just start there. That would be a great starting place. I would. I'm all for that. Let's I'm start a visionary. A I mean, I'm a visionary. You, you know, your you your young so men will dream dreams. Well, a little more contrition across the board would be a great thing. I, I agree with Sarah on it. I mean, I do, um, I have, I do have women in my life that um, perhaps I, I hear them apologizing uh, as a default when they don't know what else to say. And I, I, I know kind of what she's talking about, but it's, it's, I can't help but thinking about, you know, when, when Trump said that he has never had to ask for forgiveness, he's sort of being like, that is the wrong place to go. Uh, we need to be people who are quick to ask for forgiveness, meaning we're quick to apologize. And it's like it's what all of Ethan's talk that we posted, that incredible talk about being wrong, the relief yeah. of being wrong. I get it that yeah. it becomes a sort of a verbal tick that you end up giving your power away. But again, we're, we should be in the business of giving our power away. We, who needs well, power? Is power the- is what's killing us. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, I totally get what you're saying. Like, and I remember when my husband and I got married, he said to me, like, you apologize all the time for everything. Like, why do you keep apologizing? I get what she's saying. But, like, there was this wholehearted rally cry when this got released. And it's like all these women are like, we should stop apologizing. And I just think that's never a good idea. Like, and Well, the funny thing is, like, when she, when she said it, Sarah, I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, do you hear me? <laughs> I am sorry yeah. for cutting you off. Don't apologize. Um, 
Be your uh, person, I'm, so- David. I'm sorry that I didn't interrupt David <laughs> and demand an apology. It's okay. This the- is a safe space, you guys. What I what I hear and what I see on girls, which I, is a show I particularly enjoy, though I know Sarah, you're not a big fan. But um, it's, my wife is a fan, and the clips not, I've seen, I not, like it. It's not actually women apologizing to men; it's women apologizing to other women. There, uh, and that's what mm. you hear. It's it's the constant like, uh, and I think it's a cover, or it's actually a result of some uh, probably emotional intelligence. In fact, that you're you're bridging gaps. For constantly through this sort of giving up of power i get where and and beyonce has become like the infallible you know christ figure of our society right now poor girl i I feel for beyonce because i think that uh, that's a lot of pressure but um i i I think it's it's it, it a lot of what she's talking about actually goes on between women and is a result of wanting to men men could use some of this uh we could actually yeah. uh, um, yeah. use it among men um that's that's my two cents. By the way, can I yeah, just say, I mean, Sarah, you've jumped on, like, on this article, contra lots of people of both genders. You also this week had a great post, which got lots of traffic. Uh, uh, you're the only person that critically uh, interacted with uh, our infatuation with Chewbacca Mom, which again, I I like Chewbacca Mom. I'm just saying, but you you pointed out you some better like her because like, people are going to go after you if you ex- don't. Exactly, burning cro- burning Chewbacca's on my friend. So this week, let's do a takedown piece on Beyonce, our Messiah, and just do a trifecta. I, if, I, if I touched Beyonce in a public way, I would. I would. Say, say, no, it's Sarah's. This, yeah, this it, it's is Sarah. You were born for, for this. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah the ship's already on fire. Just push her out. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Just, just let Sarah burn out there. Yeah. No. I. You know. Whatever. I mean, the fact that people. I. I did. So I wrote this piece on the Chewbacca mom mask. I've gotten a lot of negative feedback from it, both like on the website, on my Facebook page, in person from people I work with. And, um, yeah, Why I you gotta be so negative. What? About, Such a hater. I, I wish people got this riled up about like Syrian refugees. That'd be awesome. You know what I mean? But we're like, it's like, it's just crazy to me, but whatever. I'm stealing their joy. I don't know. I let you do it with a smile though. Yeah. I, I yeah. I think on, it's very interesting. Like, uh, I, I mean, you know, my wife and I have probably are, are an interestingly gender role kind of couple because there's some things that are, probably stereotypically traditional and some that aren't. Um, but you think about like the enmity in, in the sort of um, primeval myth story of the Bible, Adam and Eve, you know, our own spiritual uh, parents and this like tragedy of the conflict uh, where the one that we find one flesh and in intimacy with is also the one both as individuals and as the other that often is uh, the source of so much of our, both no, moments of being known and moments of alienation. And I just think like, yeah, I, I think like sometimes we, we over-politicize and over-categorize. Um, and that's someone who, you know, I am on the egalitarian team, but I just think it can become uh, a oppressive sort of thing, as can it's the traditionalist reaction to it. Well, I, don't, and, I, I know we don't need to belabor this, but I do want to say this. I think that there is something interesting about the fact that in... <clears throat> Probably, you know, not a modern like overarch of Christianity, but certain, certainly Christianity as described in the past 2000 years 
we talk about Christians as being gentle of spirit. We talk about Christians as being peaceful people. We talk about even Christianity as being, you know, as nurturing. I mean, sir, we have Jesus as nurturing. And um, and I wish I I wish we could look more towards uh towards women of faith in that way and say there's something really beautiful and remarkable happening in Christianity and the women, you know, and maybe they are apologizing too much, but maybe everyone should be apologizing too much. I don't know. I just, I feel like there's something there. And also please see, before we move on, please see DZ's uh, piece on masculinity. Uh, It's very egalitarian of you, Scott. (laughs) It's it's Uh, good. Absolutely. As As I say that to you, I mean, I don't know what you mean. That's egalitarian. Is, is it because I'm sitting here in a scoop neck uh, tank top with my huge biceps? It's well, I, I, I worked. I worked very That's hard. That's two on that references, top. people. We're working for a third. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, right. So let's move You're on. Being spared, to... everyone. You're being spared something quite. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll post arresting. a picture of it on. Inst- I'm going to take a picture of it on Instagram. Absolutely. Wait, 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 wait. What if I go rogue? Can I go rogue? You can go rogue. rogue. You guys have both gone rogue now. I guess I like rogue. rogue. I didn't go rogue. Dude, you're you wearing rogue. I did. You're I wearing, did. wearing rogue. I mean, you basically uh, opened this up with a uh, uh, cannabis-soaked uh, plea for uh, funds. So I, I love it. I'm, I'm into it. But it's also a little, uh, you know, it was a little rogue. Anyway, um, Rogue One is coming out, Scott. We'll go together, maybe, if, if that if it, we've God ordains. Uh, the, this week, speaking of films, um, Love and Friendship, Whitstone's Love and Friendship is out, and it, it, it's sort of actually finally now a wider release, and it's one of my pet projects to get people to actually see his movies so that he can make more movies. And um, I think uh, you should all, if you listen to this podcast, you should try to go find Love and Friendship. If you hate it, um, I won't give you your money back, but I will just uh, judge you silently. But they... Uh, you should go. We'll send you a tote bag. Yeah, we'll send you a to, uh, this Mockingbird swag, which is yet to exist. The, the, um, what we, but we will create it. If you contribute <laughs> yeah. to the contribution, we could give the swag. It's, it's a really work. beautiful you could give You exchange. could give real money and get back stuff that you'll throw out or never use. This is what I'll say about wit. Outside of being extremely funny, and this is a Jane Austen thing that he's done, it is... Uh, no one makes funnier jokes about religion as sort of religion as as uh, as though he sort of acts as though everyone goes to church and of course it, it's 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 part of our vernacular in a way that it's just not. But um, I I've read the screenplay. I know how good this movie is, and especially how many how much uh, the church figures into it, but not in a way that has to telegraph some kind of conversion message actually, or even substitution. Uh, just in a way that it, it, it is the in reality of people's lives that is the subject of humor just like anything else, but because it's so central, it's the subject of a lot of humor. So I think people should go and uh, if just do me a favor and go. All right. Ro- rogue done. Here, rogue, rogue run over. Rogue. And, and by the way, um, if you do go, just so David can get a sense of his own 
social media and podcast footprint, please do like a hashtag or at Mockingbird with your ticket to say I went and I, and maybe you could you could do at Mockingbird hashtag I went because David said so. Yeah, or <laughs> or will, or you could do you. like hashtag Chewbacca tote bag. Hashtag Chewbacca tote bag. That's what you do. Okay, <laughs> hashtag Chewbacca tote bag. That's the official hashtag. That's it. Uh, the uh, nominations are closed. Uh, no, it's not allowed. It's not that's allowed. Ar- that's it's already been allowed. used. That, yeah. Back to school. Ring the bell. Brand new shoes. Walking blues. Climb the fence. Books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Let's go to, uh, I love that movie, Good Morning Vietnam. That was such a great movie. Robin Williams uh, of blessed memory and Episcopalian uh, mm. and a man of faith and uh, a tortured soul uh, who, yeah, brightened many of our days and nights. Um, so let's, uh, we have an amazing article in other weekends about vets moving back to Vietnam. Mm. Vietnam, American uh, vets who served in Vietnam is, as old men moving to Vietnam. Yeah, it's uh, really powerful. It, this is sent to me by my friend Jeff Dean. When the BBC is reporting about it, there's some, some sort of, uh, I don't know if you call it a movement yet, but there's enough to be, to be to do a really, really touching article about it. these vets that are, um, the, after the Vietnam War, were just either completely haunted by what happened there or... Um, felt completely useless. You know, life had sort of stopped for them uh, once they got back. Uh, they felt like they, they they wanted to move back. And, and it profiles a number of uh, men who've gone back to Vietnam to sort of basically to, to, to atone, to right some wrongs, to learn more about what was going on, to, in a lot of cases, um, to love those people. And it's, there's a huge amount of grace one of the guys says, you know, if I'd really known more, I would have been on the side of the Viet Cong. And he's married a, um, he's married a Vietnamese woman. And he's really um, out of these deep uh, wounds and this huge amount of pain that these men went through. Uh, they found healing in actually returning to the source and um, kind of wrestling with the actual flesh and blood of these uh, Vietnamese people. And a lot of them have found peace and, and they don't want to be anywhere else because their life sort of stopped at that moment in 1972 or 1973. And um, they don't see – one guy, it's all about his conversion and they felt like Jesus really uh, put it on his heart, gave him a purpose, and his purpose was to go back and sort of work to heal that heal that country um, and heal the especially what America had done and what – um, it, there's all these pictures too of these guys because most of them in their 70s and they're they're not young anymore and um, they're they're sort of displaced but also um, there's something deeply redeem redemptive going on and I find it I found it to be uh, just a, a gripping and the, the pictures have really uh, stayed with me. Yeah, I loved one of the quotes. Uh, the guy said, "Returning to Vietnam is a way to end frozen memories," um, which I mean is maybe the most courageous statement I've heard about someone dealing with their past, a way to end frozen memory. So, yeah, I agree with you. The photographs are stunning. 
And there's no, there's thankfully no tank tops. I, I noticed that not one of the men <laughs> Which, is wearing a tank one. top. I, yeah. I wouldn't do well there because I don't like humidity. <laughs> or heat. I, I like summer, but too much humidity. But you know, it's interesting. We had um, last week we had Fleming Rutledge on, who has a great book on the atonement uh, and and defending a kind of uh, the best kind of substitution. And also in the pre-show taught me about. A delicacy which I'm planning to have, Shad Rowe, which is, uh, uh, which I've never, she's just, she's a woman that is, uh, she's a Renaissance woman. But, but one of the interesting things is like substitutionary atonement has fallen on hard times these days. But it's interesting, you don't just see it in the Passion. In the first healing story, I think in Mark, the leper, Jesus is praying, it's his only source of energy. Uh, is you know being in the desolate places, but he's got a call to be among the people, and and, and Jesus was fun at a party, right? But that's where the lepers hang out, and so he heals several lepers, and one, uh, well, he says, you know, don't tell anybody, and one goes and tells everybody, and then it says, and then he was restored, and then Jesus had to stay in the desolate places. Or you think about like with Lazarus, you know, the closer the whole in John eleven when Jesus hears his friend dies and goes to heal Lazarus. The closer he gets to the tomb, the slower the narrative gets. So, like, the closer he gets to Lazarus, the more Jesus looks dead. And then after he raises Lazarus, the Sanhedrin says, we've got to kill him. You know, for the better one man suffers, you know, than, than all the people do. And so I think there's, on some level, I think it's uh, Dorothy Sayers, or no, um, uh, no, it's not Dorothy Sayers, but it's someone else. But says um, Sol- Sola um, says, um, they're just these crosses inscribed everywhere in creation. Mm. And I think every, I think M. Scott Peck says anytime some great evil is overcome, it's by some great redemptive sacrifice. So that just echoes the truth, I think, of you know, the judge judged in our place. And it's, what a beautiful uh, instantiation of it. And of all places, Vietnam. Thanks again to you, David and Sarah, for being with me again. And we will catch you all next week. Thanks again for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find all the content referenced on our website, mbird.com. And we love mail. We love to hear feedback, what you think, and to hear your stories. So you can email us at info at mbird.com. And please, if you like what you heard, drop by iTunes and give us a rating or a review. Have a great weekend.